Hello and welcome to the Stephen Perkins Podcast. My name is Stephen Perkins. This is my podcast. You know how the whole thing goes. I, I don't know about you, but I am still feeling those Thanksgiving effects, if you know what I'm talking about. So uh, hopefully you're not still like full from Thanksgiving, but hopefully you're able to work some of it off. Um, I had a good time down here in Texas. I hope you had a good time as well. This week, well, first, let me, what are we doing here? This is the show where I interview uh, emerging leaders in conservative politics, media, and business. Uh, This week, I'm talking again with a writer. His name is Michael Schindler, and we are covering everyone's favorite topic because it directly affects their bank account. That's right. It is tax reform week on this show. Uh, Following last week's uh, tax reform week in Uh, the Republican House. And so now uh, that Republicans are trying to pass tax reform, Michael Schindler and I, uh, who is, he's a Young Voices advocate, uh, we talk about tax reform and we dive into a little bit about the estate tax of which he um, has recently written a piece on. Um, And other than that, we just kind of bounce around and, and, and talk about really why is it so hard to get a simplified tax code? A question on everyone's mind. So, uh, please sit back, uh, relax, and enjoy this interview with Michael Schindler on tax reform. Michael, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, good to have you on and, and talking this week about a topic that uh, is in the news as of last week, really, uh, and that is tax reform or taxes in general. Republicans last week um, put through the House a tax reform plan. It's now on its way to the Senate. Um, I've noticed that there isn't a celebration on the White House lawn this time, so maybe they're they're, they're looking at a different strategy there. Um, you have an article uh, that, that you did recently about the estate tax or the death tax, um, which we'll get to. But first, I want to dive into some of your background. So where did you get your start? Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Um, and when did politics become one of your interests? Um, sure. So I grew up in, I suppose, in New York and then briefly New Jersey. Um, and with regard to my start in politics, so after an abortive foray into the idea of art as a career, uh, I thought that I ought to study finance, which, unlike art, might make me piles of money. I enrolled in Rutgers, uh, studied finance, but quickly discovered, especially after a brief internship on Wall Street, that much more than cash, I was interested in theory. So I changed my major to econ and added political science as a second major. Um, and after I started looking into the question of what is the case with regard to economics and, and politics, um, I quickly sort of asked myself what ought to be the case. And that was the start of, uh, I suppose, my interest in politics engagement in it. Did you do anything during that time where you were getting involved with campaigns or you started writing then? What did that uh, involvement look like? Sure. So um, uh, at the time in college, um, I was the head of history and political science discussion club, um, treasurer of a classics club, which was somewhat political. Um, As you can tell from, I suppose, my club affiliations at the time, I really dislike partisan social clubs. Uh, The conversations tend to be less interesting. I think that I only got um, involved in overt activism after graduating college. And so from those, it also sounds like, um, as you mentioned, political theory, it's more of an academic track, wouldn't you say? Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that something that interests you or or does 
still interests you is the the academic side of of that? Well, I think that in terms of coming acknowledgeable about the discourse and trying to advance it, that's very interesting to me, but I'm not interested in uh, pursuing academia as a career. I certainly don't want to spend my days as a professor teaching undergrads or even grads and submitting papers to journals that people barely read. I'd much rather be engaging with the general public in articles and op-eds or poetry and trying to get actual legislation passed, either by working um, uh, like, um, like along with publications or think tanks or even with um, uh, like po- like policy bodies like properly. I don't uh, that's you. my main interest. Don't blame you mm-hmm. for that. So how'd you make your way over to Young Voices as one of their advocates? Sure thing. So my first gig in D.C. was the Coke Policy Fellowship, which I did at the Manhattan Institute's D.C. branch. One of my bosses there, uh, Jared Meyer, recommended that I apply to the program. He knew the director at the time, Casey Given, he th- and he thought oh, I'd be a great fit. Um, I was interested in getting my writing out there. Um, at the time, I was writing for the Manhattan Institute's economics publication, Economics 21, and uh, this was a way for me to start getting my stuff in more publications and uh, sort of like broadening my sphere of activity. And in terms of what you generally write about, what are those topics that most interest you? Sure. Um, so I, I suppose I'm odd in, like, in this respect with regards to the rest of the advocates at Young Voices. Um, my, my articles run the gamut. Some weeks I'll write about tax policy, other weeks missile defense, and last week, in fact, I read about inter- international communications privacy law. So it's really all over the place. That that is quite a, a wide array, but that's interesting. Um, certainly, topics that that have a lot of nuance to it. Uh, let's talk about something uh, obviously that that's been going on in the news. Something you wrote about recently, and that is taxes, more specifically tax reform. Um, mm-hmm. I. From what I've seen, there's a lot of mixed reactions on the right and certainly from the left, but that's more expected on the version of tax reform that passed the House last week. What is your initial reaction to what the Republican Congress did last week? Sure. So I definitely think it's a step in the right direction. Uh, Not a particularly graceful step, but a step nonetheless. This is one of those those policies that affects – 100% 100% of the economy, whereas, you know, their health care vote a couple of months ago was only a certain part of the economy. Um, so understandably, it's it's a it's a really big deal. And, and, and as Speaker Ryan has said, the tax code hasn't really been updated since uh, since the 80s. And so now it's time to update that. Um, some of the challenges with this is depending on the report you read, the deficit is going to be effective, affected negatively and not in the right direction in terms of negatively. Um, there's also, we haven't seen any current initiatives to reduce spending. So the, the idea is that we're increasing the deficit, we're not reducing spending, um, and that is leading us into a dangerous position. What are your thoughts on that direction that thing uh, that things seem to be heading in towards? And, you know, with the angle that that's not traditional for conservatives to want to go that way. Sure. Um, so I suppose like my line of thought would be very sympathetic to yours. Um, uh, I'm worrying about the deficit overall. That's my main worry. I probably with the uh, tax reform, the great hope is that once we reduce the amount of funds available, that wise legislators will spend accordingly. I doubt they will, but that's the hope. Um, and we're a nation of innovators, so I have some courage. Certainly not the trend we've seen, but 
mm-hmm. one one can dream. So when you look at the the bill, what what are some favorite aspects to it that stick out to you? Sure. Um, uh, so some things that jumped out at me from uh, the House bill was the increased child tax credit and the reduction of corporate taxes. Um, the child tax credit incentivizes family building and growth, and the corporate tax reduction incentivizes the same for corporations. Um, those, I suppose, are my favorite parts of the plan. What about the not-so-favorite parts of the plan? Um, well, with regard to the not-so-favorite parts of the plan, a lot of it's um, uh, sort of murky. Um, so, for example, the pass-through rate tax treatment um, uh, is going to... Um, well, there are some senders who say that it won't give a fair like shake to a lot of small business owners. Um, I'm not sure about... Um, what's it called, the pass-through rates, but I'm, I'm sure that we do want to raise like revenue. I mean, I would love to, you know, to keep that into current law, but I also have the deficit in mind. Um, also, with regard to the Senate bill, uh, they're not repealing, or I, at least they're not planning on repealing the estate tax, just doubling the exemption. That's, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, where you mentioned that I'd written an article on the estate tax and the repeal. Um, so I'm not too happy about the Senate version. Um, otherwise my main concern isn't with any of the technicalities, but rather with, uh, the concern of, you know, like how we're going to, um, uh, reconcile this with the deficit. Absolutely. And, and one of the, so on the estate tax right now, it's about, uh, five and a half. Um, and they're, they're pretty much doubling that. Why do you think, and, and you make the argument that it needs to go away, uh, why, why do you believe that um sure so first off with the exemption um being doubled i think it's a great step in the right direction um so why i think that there are three main points and i'll quickly try to run through them um the first and i make all these in my article in the washington examiner and and i urge your listeners to go and take a look at that for more but one it's a costly injustice that contributes less than one percent to revenue generates compliance cost equal to what little amount it contributes and worse, it disincentivizes wealth creation. Two, the estate tax is a bulwark against the accumulation of multigenerational wealth, which itself is a lifeblood of America's cultural institutions, enables folks to pursue vital public goods, and is an important component of the American dream. And number three, at last, the estate tax is a tool used by egalitarian idealists to pit the poor against the rich. It's an argument for the redistribution of wealth and is thus as immoral as it is anti-American. Now, to be fair, there, there's... Not as I think not as many people or not as many estates that fall under the tax as some people may think, but it's still oh, there are extremely few, yeah, right. But but it, but it's still one of those something I haven't even thought about. You talk about uh, the the price to to actually make sure that people are in compliance with it um, is reaching up towards the amount of money it's actually bringing in. That doesn't, I mean that that does sound like government, but that doesn't seem like a very uh, effective program. Um, some of the big arguments we heard that Senator Cruz and Senator Sanders had a debate and, and they talked uh, in part about this. Um, what are some of the, the, the biggest arguments that people use as to why we need to keep the estate tax? Uh, the distribution of wealth, I'm sure, is the largest one. Sure. So um, uh, the one that you often hear is um, uh, the revenue argument. They say, hey, you know, we, we need the revenues to maintain the government to keep as make sure it's funded, do you want to raise the deficit even more? But obviously, 
um, the economic argument isn't that sound because it doesn't bring that much in. And honestly, you could raise the corporate tax rate slightly and it would make up for the dip that you would get from appealing the estate tax. So really, it's about uh, this notion of fairness that um, people shouldn't get piles of money without doing anything. Um, I think that there is a professor at Columbia, Michael J. Gratz, who wrote an article to that effect in the Wall Street Journal saying, is it fair for Paris Hilton to um, uh, get all that cash when she didn't do anything? And that's a, uh, that's a notion that really resonates across America. And it's been a sort of recurrent um, theme in American like, politics, for example. Um, Huey Long had proposed a legislation under the Share the Wealth Plan, uh, which would have capped inheritances and... Um, Bernie Sanders, a while ago, I'm, like I'm blanking on the name of, of legislation that he proposed, um, but it would have raised the top rate to something like 65%. So this is something that's uh, been in debate for a while, but it's only been around the state tax since 1916, so it hasn't existed for the whole of our history. Such an interesting argument, uh, or, or I, I guess statement to say that, oh, those people don't need that money. Uh, they, they don't, they, they should, people shouldn't be able to inherit money. Um, I mean, I, I have not inherited money, but I think that if you do cool, great, you know, live, live your life. Um, I, I don't think that that should be taken away from you just because some people think it's unfair. Um, and so the estate tax is one of those things. I just feel like it makes the most sense to cut. Um, so I agree with you there and we'll definitely link that, uh, that article that you did, um, in the sure. show notes, let's mm-hmm. jump back to tax reform in a, in a broad context. My ideal mm-hmm. tax system, uh, which I, is in no way reflective of, uh, of where Republicans are going with it. But I, I think for the, for the sake of simplicity, if you really want to simplify the tax code, you would have a low rate and little to no deductions or tax credits. Um, and to me, that seems like the most simplest plan. You pay your rate and that's what happens. That's your whole tax journey. Um, that is not a lot of different special interests have uh, different tax credits or deductions um, that they want. I, and I say special interests, not necessarily in a negative way. I mean, there's families that want the child tax allowance and, and that's not, I, I don't think, a negative thing. They're not doing that out of any uh, negative place. But what do you see as a challenge to really simplifying the tax code around that or some other type of system, such as some people would suggest a flat tax, or it's just the one rate, and it's an even simpler tax day? Sure. Um, So first of all, I'll try to clarify my sort of, at least the very basics of what I would call an ideal tax system. And I would say that an ideal tax system is one that best furthers the good, i.e. one that funds a justly operating government while incentivizing behavior in line with the good. Um, I do um, sympathize with the notion of a flatter tax with less deductions and um, uh, less credits, but I am, like you mentioned, I think that that you mentioned the child tax credit. I'm a fan of that. Yeah, I'm, uh, also, you did, like you didn't mention, uh, for example, like education incentives and credits. I'm a fan of those. Um, there are certain behaviors that we want to further in the economy um, that make for a strong and healthy nation. Um, I'm not against this, especially when it, I'm, uh, I can involve people paying less taxes. Um, so the biggest challenge in my mind with regard to uh, reforming the tax code and making it more ideal 
is reconciling the government to the realities of a realistic revenue. Um, taxes high enough to erase the deficit would cripple the, uh, the American way of life, and a radical reduction in the size and scope of government programs would do the same. Therefore, the only viable path forward, I think, is to move forward on both fronts, and especially to concentrate on waste and spending cuts that wouldn't be existentially disastrous. For example, there are a lot of areas of defense spending which we could really dig into, and I've talked about it at length in an article um, on like in real care defense on defense spending. Just search my name, you like it'll pop up. Um, but yeah, that's um, my first thoughts. I agree with that. I, I've been saying that there are certainly some places within military spending for one that that could use some cuts. Of course, when you say that, especially in an area like Texas, where a lot of people come, have interaction with the military, have jobs because of the military, um, that is not a, an easy sell. Uh, but, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, um, but I mean, like, um, if I can just quickly add, yeah, yeah. it's not easy to sell if you have them, uh, like domestic contractors and um, uh, domestic operations. Yeah, it's hard to sell closing those down. But we have 800 foreign bases, which is more than any other nation, country, or, like our empire in the history of mankind. And last I checked, um, do we really need a base in Heidelberg, Germany? Are the Germans threatening like a, a, a world peace? I don't think so. I certainly don't think the taxpayers should be footing the bill because it's just there for historic reasons. Some would say we're still watching those Germans. You never know. And Japan. We have to watch them. That's what some would argue. <laughs> my, my brother did, uh, did service over in Japan, and it's funny how we still treat them uh, to the extent that we won't let them acquire certain types of weapons just because we're, uh, we're, we're still, we still have them under our close full watching eye. Um, mm -hmm. so now that the plan is going to the Senate, as you alluded to earlier, there's a lot of, that's a more challenging landscape than the house. It passed easily in the house and the Senate, you have a lot of high profile Republican senators, um, who, for whatever reason, there's a bunch of different reasons why they are, but they, at the moment, are a no vote. And so now it's going to come down to what compromises can be made. How can they mark that up? Just curious. I mean, I, I know that it's it's hard to, with this Congress, it's hard to make um, guesses. And, and certainly it, it's, it's tough to try to predict this outcome. But what do you think will happen by the time it gets to the Senate floor for a vote? Do you see any budgets with things like health care? or any other, you know, tax, tax policies? Um, well, first I'll outline the, um, uh, the senders that we should be watchful of, and then I'll try to move on to the specific policy issues. Um, so the senders that we ought to keep an eye on, um, first is Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. Um, he's concerned with the way that, that the Senate bill treats pass-through entities versus how it treats like, corporations. Um, then there's Senators Jeff Flake and uh, Bob Corker, first from Arizona, second from Tennessee. They're both um, uh, worried about the deficit, understandably. Um, Jeff Flake might give a no vote. Um, he recently decided not to pursue a re-election, so he's a bit of a wild card. Um, and then there are Senators Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski. Um, and they're both against their appeal, mainly for the individual like, mandate, though I'm pretty sure that when push comes to shove, Murkowski will, um, uh, uh, will resign herself to it. Um, with regard to the differences between the bills, so the bills are pretty different in a number of important respects. For example, uh, the House bill uh, would simplify the uh, tax rates into four brackets. It currently stands at seven, whereas the Senate bill would keep the seven. 
I don't think there's going to be happy like medium. Like I, I'm pretty sure that they're not going to reduce it to just five brackets as sort of a compromise. I think it'll either be four or seven. Um, let's see something else. So a lot of the other issues between the Senate and the House, like the like the big differences, are differences in uh, degree and not in um, uh, like legislative intent. So, for example, um, with regard to the repatriation tax, um, the House bill would um, put a 14% liquid tax on folks coming back and a 7% tax on physical assets, and the Senate bill would put a 10% liquid tax on folks coming back and a 5% tax on physical assets. Um, The difference between the legislation in both bills um, isn't an intent. It's not in justification. It's purely in the um, uh, degree. So I think that we might see a happy like medium achieved between those two um, uh, like later on in the conference committee. Um, the big difference, um, I think, is the Obamacare ACA like, individual like mandate repeal, which appears in the Senate bill, but not in the House bill. Um, it'll be very hard to take out of the Senate bill because it throws things out of whack with um, the way it affects the deficit. Like, for example, out of the tax cuts, um, for the middle class that are currently in the Senate bill are only there because they're technically temporary. They'll almost certainly get renewed, but um, uh, they're technically uh, temporary, so they won't have a long-term effect on the deficit because there are certain like, Senate laws that um, uh, like that, that prevent the Senate from voting on, on budgets that would raise the deficit by certain amounts. Um, with regards to the estate tax, I'm pretty sure that the exemption will be doubled and I hope that the Senate will budge um, uh, for a repeal like the House in twenty and twenty twenty four. But it's not like a it's an issue that anybody is harping on about. So I'm not sure if there's any um, uh, you know good reason to assume that. Are there any questions um, with regard to specific p- provisions that I've mentioned that you want to touch on? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. It comes down to you know where can they compromise on those numbers. What's going to happen with some of those big things? I'll tell you, I've been watching the healthcare one specifically because um, it's a really interesting thing that Republicans, that certain Republican senators could kill the bill uh, because of of ACA uh, uh, policies within it. So that's kind of interesting. There, there's also um, you have them taking away the uh, the the state income, local and state income tax deduction. Uh, which mm-hmm. senators from high income tax states are are not too happy about, which which I understand. Um, and in fact, I, I think a lot of people outside of those states didn't even realize there was a deduction for that. So that's interesting. Um, but it will it will go to conference, and it, if it passes, and and it will be it will be an interesting little journey towards tax reform. Um, but mm-hmm. no, that was a great breakdown. Thank you for providing that. Um, sure, thanks. So mm-hmm. let's move on as we finish out. I want to close up with some questions I ask everybody um, about um, about their how they consume media, um, what kind of books have influenced them. The sure. first one's actually kind of a, a bigger question. Um, with everything that that you do, what is the why behind it? Why why are you ex- why do you get excited about what you do and what you advocate for? Um. Well. First, I'll address the why. We all have an obligation to act ethically, and um, this is my way of trying to meet that obligation. With regards to the excitement, really, on some days, I'm not that excited um, uh, to sit and um, write about some obscure, abstruse, um, like, like matter of 
like policy, but it's necessary because nobody else is talking about it. For example, like an article I wrote last week at the American Spectator on the International Communications Privacy Act. Really, like, uh, like a really like obscure bill that affects um, like the, like the reach of governments with regard to um uh, getting warrants for emails like stored either in whole or in part on extraterritorial servers, and uh, I was advocating for a bill that would legislate um uh, legal clarity as opposed to letting the courts uh, decide what the government is and is not allowed to do um, with regard to getting emails stored abroad. Um, and sometimes I'm not excited to write about things like that because it really isn't, you know, like big issues like defense or healthcare, which everyone gets involved in, which um, you could really, uh, I don't know, I'm, uh, feel electrified by sort of the common zeitgeist. Um, but it, I do it because it's important. Someone needs to do it. And, you know, and if nobody else does, then I suppose I do. And that's why I'm, uh, that, that's my why. Someone needs to do it. That is, that is, that's really important, actually. Um, and, and a lot of people I've written about this recently. There's that bystander effect of, of where people think someone else will take care of it. Um, but ultimately, we own that response and we own that responsibility. So um, that's great. What, as far as how you consume media, there's I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of a lot of stuff that happens every day. Uh, the president pardoned a turkey today. So that's exciting news. But how do you cut mm. through all the noise that may be a turkey pardon uh, and get to what's important to you and, and the things that, that you like to know about? Um, sure. So with regard to news, I generally read the places I write for. So American Conservative, American Spectator, The Washington Examiner, Town Hall, um, all the sites in the Real Clear, like Network, The Hill, Wall Street Journal, etc. Um, but um, rather, however... As it says in Ecclesiastes, much study is a weariness of the flesh. Uh, therefore, I generally only read the news excessively when I'm working on a policy article. Otherwise, I spend my time reading philosophy, history, economics, poetry, etc. More weighty and perhaps more edifying stuff. Gotcha. So it's a balance. like it. And then as far as books, what are one or two books that have influenced you the most, either personally or politically, um, the way you, you look at the world, things like that? Sure thing. Um, so personally, um, all the books I've gotten to so far within the Western canon have been tremendously influential. But um, there are hundreds of books in that list. Um, you can find a decent list on, on Wikipedia of some of the books if you just Google the Western canon or Harold Bloom has a great book out, I think, with an eponymous title. Um, politically, though, I can just put out two books which I would recommend reading, I think which most students of political I, I philosophy have read which are Plato's Republic and Hegel's Elements of, of the Philosophy of Right. And I'll put those in the show notes. Um, sure. If, if you were to um, gift some books to people, what what, get, what books would you give away? Uh, sure. So, well, it always depends on the person. Um, but I think generally, like, to at least my friends, um, like if I know, like one of their birthdays was coming up or something like that, um, I'd give a copy of Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. Uh, it's a great novel uh, that takes place at a sort of health resort um, in Europe before the outbreak of World War I, um, specifically the version translated by H.G. Lowe Porter. Um, it's one of my favorite novels, and I think it's 
tremendously helpful in understanding what was going on in Europe intellectually before the outbreak of the First World War, and it's um, useful for understanding uh, like the like where the discourse stood at that time and where our discourse now comes from. Um, other gifts, you think? Uh, any of the volumes in Will and Ariel Durant's Story of Civilization series. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the series. Um, uh, it's a couple volumes on history. Um, they're beautifully written, relatively in-depth, um, and I'd recommend them all highly. I think you gave me some uh, some Christmas some Christmas reading uh, list material, so that's awesome. Well, uh, Michael, I appreciate you coming on the show, and, and thank you for, for talking about tax reform. Uh, we'll be watching it, perhaps can do a follow-up. And um, where can people find you online? Sure. Um, uh, they can either go to my page at Young Voices, um, which you can find by just Googling my name, or you can find me on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is just my name, at Michael Schindler. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Michael for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find our other podcasts at Outset by going to outsetmagazine.com slash podcast. Find us on social media at Outset Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me at Stephen underscore Perkins on Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins. And until we speak again next week with a new guest and a new topic, take care. God bless. Thank you.